0: Today Today is Easter Sunday. The day of the empty cross. The day of the empty tomb. The day of victory. Thine be the glory, risen conquering son. Endless is the victory. Thou over death hast won. So sing we Christians in joyful celebration on Easter Sunday. But how final does that shout of victory resound in our minds? How final does that shout of victory resound in our lives? How final, how definite does that shout of victory resound in our path of faith? I wouldn't be surprised if you start feeling a bit defensive right now. Depending on what kind of faith tradition that you have inherited, there's a chance that you might feel like I'm setting up a guilt trap, right? And attempting to expose the shakiness of your certainty. Shouldn't Easter Sunday be a big exclamation mark kind of thing? A confident shout of certainty. But it would be wise to not rush to Easter Sunday and victory. There is little to say about an empty cross had it not been the place of the death of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. There is little to say about an empty tomb had it not housed the dead body of the wandering preacher From Galilee. As we come to Easter Sunday, have we allowed ourselves the shock and the tears of Friday? Have we felt the painful silence of Saturday? Have we dared walk into the tomb, into the place of death? In fear? Have we left room also in our Sunday morning for utter bewilderment and yes, for doubtful confusion? This Easter, I want to invite you to reflect not so much on exclamations, but on questions. Questions surrounding the events of the Easter week. And I want to invite you to embrace a profound question. Because Easter Sunday isn't about barren certainties. It's about life that dares question the certainties of death. Will you stand with me as we read today's text? And we find it in the Gospel according to St. Luke. And I will read from, verse, from chapter 22, verse 66, all the way to 23, yeah, 25, Just let me find this here. From the Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 22, verse 66. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the son of God? He replied, you say that I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted, he steers up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, for, for, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied with him many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. You may sit down. What do we do with Jesus? What do we do With Jesus? That is the first question that I want to reflect on with you today. And it is the most obvious question in these events we have just read about. What do we do with Jesus? The question is now laid for Pilate to answer. But it was first the question of the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that is to say, the religious authorities. They started asking this question long before this day. They started asking it when this wandering teacher, this rabbi from Galilee started drawing crowds with his teachings and his healings and his miracles. They started asking it when this rascal rabbi Jesus started sitting down for meals with tax collectors and with prostitutes and started healing people on the Sabbath and disturbing the order and when he started exposing the hypocrisy of the religious system as it was being used as an instrument of oppression and abuse. And they started asking, what do we do with Jesus? They weren't of course the only ones asking. The disciples themselves asked that question. And they decided that what they would do was to follow him and to learn from him. But the question of the religious authorities it very quickly transformed from what do we do with Jesus to what do we do to Jesus? How do we get rid of him? How do we make him less of a problem? less of a threat, less of a bother. And now they bring the question to Pilate, and they bring it along with an accusation that Jesus was subverting their nation, and with a not at all subtle suggestion of what they thought should be done with Jesus. He should be killed, crucified. And that is the answer that they also get the crowd on board for. As Pilate tries to figure out what he as a political authority should do with Jesus, the crowd shouts in echo of the religious authorities, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And eventually Pilate gives in and he hands Jesus over to be crucified. And it's worth asking, why does he do that? Why does he allow Jesus to be killed when he obviously considers Jesus to be innocent? Luke makes sure that we understand that Pilate thinks that Jesus is innocent. And why do the the crowds shout, crucify? And I would argue that this has to do with how they deal with the second question that I also want to reflect on with you today. And that question is, what can Jesus do for us? What should we do with Jesus? What can Jesus do for us? And it is perhaps easiest in the story that we have read today to place place this question in the lips of Herod. Herod was, after all, pleased to see Jesus precisely because he expected to get something out of that meeting he expected jesus to be able to do something for him perhaps a miracle some sort of sign something that would be worth his while and attention so he applied jesus with questions trying to somehow get jesus to do something for him and when jesus doesn't play along with his expectations he takes another route He ridicules Jesus. He mocks Jesus for his unanswered questions and for his unmet expectations. He dresses him with royal robes and makes Jesus into a caricature of what Jesus is being accused of. Here's your king. But there is something more insidious going on here than this caricature. While mocking Jesus for not meeting his expectations, Herod is also doing something else. He is trying to get something out of Jesus despite Jesus. He's trying to get something out of Jesus despite Jesus. He is trying to make Jesus useful to his own means, quite independently of what Jesus might think about it. Because in this story, Jesus is being used as a pawn in a political game. I've often wondered at verse 12 in chapter 23. That day Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. It's a weird verse, right? What, what, what's, what's that all about? And after looking further into this, I believe the most logical reason for this new friendship you know, when politicians are friends, we got to use coat marks. Uh, for this f- new friendship is the way that Jesus is used in this story as a token of political favor. And this is more or less how this works. By sending Jesus over to Herod, who was, had authority over the Galilee region, right? By sending Jesus over to Herod, Pilate is showing respect to Herod's jurisdiction, And therefore, he's showing respect to Herod's position of power. Now, the smart thing for Pilate is that he is doing that with a prisoner that had a lot of public appeal and that Herod was particularly interested about, but also someone that Pilate did not really consider a real risk or danger. He already thought he was innocent. Pilate has nothing to lose. So let Herod... Here, Herod, here's your prisoner. Here's my token of political favor. Pilate had very little to lose. And then Herod, on the other hand, has his fun, asks Jesus, tries to get something out of it. He won't get anything from Jesus. He can still make political capital on this. So he sends him back to Pilate. And by sending him back, he returns the favor. And by doing that, he shows respect to Pilate's authority as a Roman governor. And at the same time, he gets to wash his hands of the consequences of publicly condemning a popular Jewish leader, which was a Jewish teacher, which was much more dangerous for Herod than it was for Pilate. And Pilate, then, surrenders Jesus to the will of the Jewish religious leaders. Having failed to have Jesus meet their expectations of what Jesus could do for them, and having then succeeded in using Jesus as a tool for getting something that they wanted, they no longer care for the innocence or the life of this poor carpenter turned rabbi from Galilee. Let him be crucified for all they care. And isn't that what the crowd wants after all? The crowd shouting crucify. I find it a bit harder to discern what's going on with the crowd. Especially because there are different crowds here in the gospel according to St. Luke. There are these that are shouting crucified and there are also the women. Who, the women who followed the grim procession to Golgotha and are mourning and are wailing over the fate of their beloved teacher. And these things are a bit mixed. But Luke emphasizes and singles out those on the crowd who join in on a mood of Herod and of the religious leaders. Those who not only call uh, for the crucifixion, but who taunt Jesus and who mock him. And their taunt, it seems, reveal why they are joining the cry for death. He saved others, they say. Let him save himself if he is really God's Messiah, the chosen one. A mere week ago, Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem and received a king's welcome to chants of Hosanna to the son of David. David the great king. David the archetype of the Jewish king. Hosanna to the son of David. And the shouts of Hosanna still tingle in the air of Jerusalem and of the temple. And the contrast, the incoherence is heart wrenching and it is revealing. Jesus had not taken the king's role, not the one that they knew, not the one that met their expectations. He didn't take power. He kept on preaching and healing and spending time with lepers and broken people and outcasts. What kind of a king is that? What can that Jesus do for us? Crucify him. Show us, Jesus, what you can do for us. And if you can't do what we want, we'll either crucify you or use you to get what we want. Crucify. As Jesus hangs on the cross, two criminals are crucified along with him, one on each side. And one of these criminals he he sort of crystallizes this dynamic of this question right this question what can jesus do for us he turns to jesus and he says aren't you the messiah save yourself and save us get down from the cross and get me down as well what good is a dead messiah what good is a god that loses What good is a God that doesn't miraculously pull us out of suffering when it hurts the most? I think we should be careful, though, that we don't make a mock image of this this criminal and of the crowd and make them evil, evil caricatures that care nothing for Jesus. I don't think that's the point. The point is they care for themselves. They, they want relief from their suffering. And because they don't understand what Jesus is up to, they try to find a way of fitting him into what they do understand and what they can relate to. And honestly, it's not too difficult for us to do the same it is all too easy for us to speak of Christ and speak of the cross in very similar ways. We speak of Jesus as the one who can save us and the cross as the means through which he saves us. And soon we are parading the cross as a symbol of victory and a victory that is ours. And before we know it, We have dressed Jesus in royal robes of our own making. And we are parading this mock savior that can answer the question, what can Jesus do for us? This Jesus that can quiet down our anxious thoughts and fears, a Jesus that can give a final answer to the misery of death and all the shapes that it takes. And we make Jesus into a religious pawn to calm our nerves and to fight our wars. Hosanna if you play the role of the kings. Crucify if you don't. There's another criminal hanging there. And I think that He invites us into another question altogether. But the other criminal rebuked him, the first criminal. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, it's true that this criminal also asks something of Jesus. So one might argue that he also has an underlying question of what can Jesus do for us? What I find remarkable, though, is that this man doesn't seem to expect that Jesus granting this request of his implies Jesus stepping down from the cross and getting him down with him. In fact, This man seems to accept that they will both die. Both him and Jesus. And yet, yet somehow, somehow the absurdity of Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, hanging there, sharing his death, somehow that gives him hope. Hope that Christ's death next to his has the power to change everything. To change even the way in which he perceives himself in his own death and in his own suffering. power for forgiveness, power for belonging, power to speak of a kingdom that is powerful enough not to avoid death, but to withstand it and still bring blessing and life. Not to run away from the reality of death, but to withstand it And somehow bring hope and life. The question that this criminal invites us into is, what does it mean that Jesus is with us? Not what do we do with Jesus. Not what can Jesus do for us. But what does it mean that Jesus is with us? What does it mean that Jesus is with us in our death? What does it mean that Jesus is with us in our suffering? What does it mean that in the moment of most profound pain, where the consequences of our own violence and of the violence of the world seemed crushingly overwhelming, that on that moment we look to the side and there is Christ with us? Offering life as he shares our death. That is the most powerful world transforming question of them all. Not what do we do with Jesus, not what can Jesus do for us, but what does it mean that Jesus is with us? I don't think Easter Sunday with the empty tomb was an ending exclamation marked of victory for those close to Jesus. I think it was rather something that blew up their minds and souls into billions of questions of what does this mean? How do we live knowing that he lives? How do we die knowing that he lives and died? How do we live into this life that questions the certainties of death? How do we lean into this hope that blossoms in barren ground? How do we look into our suffering and the suffering of those around us if Christ is with us? Because I think we all know that suffering comes That it stays. We all know that violence makes no excuses. We all know that when we paraded Christ as our own mock version of a king, maybe we've been the one causing the violence. But what does it mean? to look to the side in a moment of our pain and see Jesus there with us and say because you're here with me there's hope there's life this is the kind of stuff that survives the winter. We need to acknowledge the tomb when we speak of resurrection. We need to acknowledge the cross when we speak of life. We need to speak of compassion when we speak of generosity. We need to say the Lord is risen. He's risen indeed. He's risen because he died. He's risen because he died. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you to the reality of your lives and to your darkest days and your days of greatest joy that he may bring you of his peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and serve the Lord and serve the world joyfully.